Oh, hey, Al. What are you doing here in the studio? Oh, hi, Miles. I've just been hanging out quietly, you know, catching up on my reading. Since the last time we recorded? In February? Wow, yeah, the, the time really goes in, eh? Well, since you're here, maybe you could give me a hand with something. Sure, go for it. So, I've been looking into this Diablo guy since he factors into one of the comics we're talking about today, and, geez, his Marvel database page is like a million miles long. Yeah, that makes sense, Miles. I mean, he's been a villain since the early years of the Silver Age. Or longer, if we're talking about his origin story. He was a Spanish noble back in the 9th century named Esteban Diablo. Man, he is extra old. But wait a minute. What kind of a 9th century Spanish noble name is Diablo? Wasn't the Spanish nobility pretty anti-devil back then? Yeah, they were, which is probably why Marvel retconned his name into actually being Esteban Corazón de Diablo. Steve, Heart of the Devil? That's not necessarily better. Well, eventually they settled on Esteban Corazón de Hablo. You know, fine. But if he's that old, he must have attempted a ton of villainous deeds. I guess that's why his Marvel database page was so long. Oh, absolutely, and most of them were the best kind of unnecessarily elaborate. I'm listening. Well, he tried to turn all the salt in New York's salt mines into an addictive drug. I didn't even know New York had salt mines. Okay, what else? He posed as a homeless veteran to brainwash She-Hulk, and later he brainwashed the Fantastic Four's postman, Willie Lumpkin, by talking to him from a magic mirror. Aw, Willie. He took over the bird people's sky island so that he could get high up enough to fix the hole in the ozone layer and then threatened to unfix it unless he got to rule the world. That's amazing. I don't even know where to start with how amazing that is. But none of those things are the worst of his crimes because one time... What? One time what? What could be so, well, diabolical? He spent decades conspiring to commit... Uh, come on, Al. I'm on the edge of my seat. Insurance fraud. What?! I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Al Kennedy, filling in for G-Edison. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 431 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back once again to Al Kennedy. Al, we haven't recorded together since uh, early this year. Yeah, and we've been talking for a while about what would be a fun thing to do to get me back on for a, a special uh, guest appearance and all that kind of thing. And I think we've we've found a couple of comics that are a little bit off the beaten path and that I think are going to be a lot of fun to chat through. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I remember uh, we were a little sad we didn't have time to fit in something you were hoping to record, specifically that being the Generation X Underground Special by Jim Mahfood from 1998. And we talked a little bit about what to pair it with. And listeners, you are in for a treat as far as that one as well. <laughs> so, 
Al, you uh, you were excited to do the Gen X Underground special. So what's your history with that comic? Well, I, I bought this off the racks in 1998 when I was, well, it was come out in, I think it was cover dated May 98. So it will actually have come out in March 98. So I'll have been 17. And it was the first time I ever saw Jim Mahfoud's art. And it was just amazing from, like, I was not a big, big indie comics guy back then. You know, my kind of everyday general bread and butter when it came to comic books was Marvel, a little bit of DC, although not very much, occasional indie stuff. But my indie um, kind of proclivities were largely limited to, um, it was mostly things like um, Mike Allred's Madman, which I got into um, when it launched as part of, uh, I think it was part of Legend imprint at Dark Horse along with things like concrete and, and that kind of thing. And uh-huh. uh, and the tick as well. I was a big fan of the tick at that point in time because they just brought out uh, the ticks back and they were just about to launch uh, Big Blue Destiny, which is just an amazing series. But anyway, this is not a, this is not TikTok. This is a, a totally <laughs> different podcast. Um, but I picked up this Generation X Underground special. Literally, I, I lifted it off the racks because I was like, what on earth is this thing? It looks like somebody has come into the shop and has left their own like home produced zine about Generation X on the racks along with the the regular Marvel comics. And it just totally blew my head off. I thought it was absolutely incredible. I followed Jim Mahfoud after that to so many of his other things. Um, the Clerks comics at Oni, um, Girl Scouts, um, stupid comics. It, I basically just became a, a convert to, to his work, and it was through this comic. Yeah, uh, I, I think my history with Jim Mahfoud is is similar to yours as far as the Clerks comics and Girl Scouts. And listeners, that's Girl Scouts, like G-R-R-L. Uh, Jay and I read those a lot when we were younger. Uh, but this is some of his most fun work. And I guess for listeners who are unfamiliar with Jim Mahfoud's style, it's a very distinctive style. Like, how would you describe his artistic style? It's very um, marker heavy, like it's very thick lines, it's very deliberate, you don't, there's no, um, it's about as far away as you can imagine from a kind of Jim Lee kind of comic style as you could get. There's a great angularity to it, there is a huge expressiveness in it. Um, Characters are um, kind of elastic in that slightly Looney Tunes way when they need to be um it's it's very indie it's not at all the kind of thing i would have imagined to have seen from marvel in 1998 maybe a little more close to the kind of thing i might have expected to have seen from marvel in about 2001 when marvel were doing things like strange tales and um you know getting pete bag in to do things but you know when the rest of the line was stuff like you know, Mutant X or whatever, it was very, very unusual to see this kind of thing coming out of Marvel. For real, yeah. It's, uh, and you mentioned that it seemed like someone slipped their zine onto the comics racks, and that is very much uh, the feel of this. It very much feels like an independently produced zine, you know, complete with some pages that seem kind of paste up, some sketch pages. It's an anthology. It's got a bunch of different short stories, which are only somewhat related to one another. Like, it's got this indie vibe that just, you did not see it, Marvel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
even up to the point where they've got two different pages in this, which are described as being official bootlegs, where they recommend that you do things like you know, cut these out, get them screen printed onto T-shirts and things like that. Yeah, I, I love that. But the the bulk of the comic is uh is a few short stories. There's one big one called Banshee's Angels and a couple of of shorter ones as well. And I kind of feel like we should just go through them. Uh what order do you want to uh go through these in, Al? Well, let's start at the very beginning. I believe it's a very good place to start. Um I heard that in a song once. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's kick off then with uh, the Generation X Underground special strip number 1, The Big Game. This is kind of typical of the strips that are in this comic because it is a lot to do with the fact that Jim Maffey clearly enjoys the characters of Generation X. So what he likes doing is is taking the characters and putting them into scenarios where he can get to bring out aspects of their characters and have fun doing it. So this strip is basically, it's just a story of Skin playing Space Invaders on an Atari 2600 and getting himself into kind of a pissing contest with M about who is actually better at it or who would be better at it. So when M arrives in the the rec room at the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters, um, Angela's sitting playing uh, Space Invaders and M just wants to know what he's up to. And she's just, well... Not impressed is, I think, the first thing that strikes me. She just says it looks very primitive. You don't get it, Em. I'm just not into these new high-tech systems today. They're too flashy, you know? Who needs super realistic graphics and 32 bits, whatever the hell that is, when you got one of these bad boys? <laughs> the fact that he describes it as a bad boy is very much... It feels like a Top Gear presenter. You know, it feels like he's going to, like, stroke it gently in a way that makes you think, do you need to be left alone with this computer system, sir? <laughs> right. And I love this. I love Skin as kind of this pop culture hipster. I love that Mafu just sort of uh, immediately gets these these quirks of the characters that have not necessarily come out in the comics before and yet feel very true to them. Mm. And I also love that, like, by putting the characters into these not very super heroic situations and bouncing them off each other, like, we just get these little peaks at the different dynamics between each pair of characters. Like, we've talked in the podcast before about how we love that about, for instance, New Mutants, that every pair of characters has their own unique dynamic. And Mafu does that so well. Like, I don't know if he was just a regular Gen X reader or did a lot of homework before this or what, but he gets it. Yeah, I think reading between the lines here that he was brought into the project by Scott Lobdell, which would make sense if he was a fan of Gen X anyway. Um, but it it does mean that um, when you get these different pairings of the characters, it it will be the ones that he enjoys writing. So there's a, a, a section later on where we see a sketchbook, and one of the things he says is about Everett, about Sink, is that Everett seems to be a, a more kind of withdrawn character. And the result of that in the Generation X Underground special is that he just doesn't bother doing anything with Everett. Um, Everett turns up on Sketchbook page and on the, the Trading Cards page, and that's kind of it. Yep, which of course is not just a Jim Mafood problem. I feel like most writers never knew what to do with Sync. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think it's really only in the last, what, about three years that 
that he's come into his own as a character because people have realized that much like Doug, I think in a way, um, he's actually got this incredibly versatile power set and that um, what looks like a, a restrictive um, power on the page when you just write it down can actually be used really interestingly by somebody who's got the imagination to do it. Now, what this means for this comic is he's going to be no use whatsoever as a character in a strip where it's two characters play each other at Space Invaders. Because unless <laughs> one of M's powers is amazingly good at old arcade games, then he's not going to be able to mirror that. Um, it'd be great if that did turn out to be one of her powers. Like, there have been weirder mutant powers out there, and M certainly has a lot of powers. She does. That could easily be part of the collection. I mean, Superman canonically has super weaving as a power, so, you know, stranger <laughs> things have happened. I forgot about that. That's the super ventriloquism is the other really great one that I love, which you don't see enough anymore. Anyway. No, more super ventriloquism. Come on, DC. If you're listening to this Marvel podcast, uh, you know, you're not. So I'm not even going to finish that sentence. <laughs> so uh, the the way that this strip has been um, put together is really cool because it, it shows you the teenagers living like teenagers. So you get all these little background details. You've got a box of Everest records lying around. You've got a long box of Jubilee's comics, which has got this label on the side of it that basically says, anybody that touches these, I will murder you slowly. And they've got posters of like Isaac Hayes and Jim Miroquai and things like that up on the wall. And it's that very kind of 90s aesthetic as well, where the posters are done in that way that you would see in um, like 90s teen movies and so on, where they're all at a slight angle, as if mm-hmm. some whoever's been hanging these has had a wooden leg that's had the end chopped off. Like a pirate that's listing to one side has hung these posters. Possibly, <laughs> possibly that's a very specific way of looking at it. But what I mean is they're at an angle. <laughs> I can only hope that uh, Pirate Cap'n Bloodscream from that one uh, issue that, that we covered uh, ages ago at this point has shown up with a wooden leg because he didn't have one before just to hang their pictures and then has gone back to leading a, a pirate crew of the damned. Yeah, exactly. So it, in, in this context, I mean, it could be Rory, I guess, from uh, Excalibur coming in with his proto-Ahab uh, get-up, possibly. Uh, again, we're calling for very specific guest stars to make the poster hanging make sense. <laughs> but <laughs> um, So Angelo is desperate to have this confrontation with him. He thinks he's the greatest at this game and that he could easily beat him because, as M says, she didn't play video games growing up. She was studying. And so he manages to convince her to take part because he calls her a, a sissy girl wussy. And she's like, well, fine. Okay. If that means that much to you, that you would call me a sissy girl wussy, then sure. And that begins the war of the high scores. And it goes and it goes and it goes for over a day straight as skin is getting like more and more frazzled and burned out and M is like, fine. I like that you can see the um, the clothes that the other characters are wearing change over the days. <laughs> I think it, it ends up going like we, we see multiple changes of clothes um, from people like, you know, you got uh, Sink turns up at one point um, in, uh, let's see, what's on it, a Curtis Blow t-shirt. And then you've got him on the, the next day after that 
a further 24 hours of play later when he turns up in a totally different shirt. It's like, this man is well-rested. He has been to bed. And you two are just continuing to play. And of course, Em is completely unfrazzled. She's just being Monet. Whereas Angelo is so obsessed with winning that he's he's allowed his beard to grow in over the period of the story, which I think is a wonderful touch. Just a little visual gag. It's oh, it's great. Like there's just so much to pay attention to in these panels. Uh, it's uh, we're we're an audio medium, so we'll do what we can. But <laughs> if you have a chance, listeners, just find this. It's on Marvel Unlimited. They just added it like really recently. Uh, but yeah, so they they play and they play, and eventually, uh. Skin manages to beat M's incredibly good high score by, like, one point, and he is so thrilled. M, however, is very M about the whole thing. Or did I just let you win? Maybe I grew tired of that silly game, realizing how futile it was, and let myself die when I did. We could have played for weeks, and I don't know about you, but I've got more productive things to do with my time. And and she walks away with the sound effect, triumphant walk. That is the sound effect. <laughs> I love that. I love that that is something which is definitely lifted from the tick because that was the, one of the tick's signature things was that all sound effects would just be a description of what was happening rendered as a sound effect. Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> so the, this is kind of, is only a, a few pages long, this story, but it is kind of... Um, a great example of what this special is about. It's about how great these characters are, how versatile they are, how you can use them in, in stories of different tones and different kinds. It's all kind of low stakes stuff. It's all personality based. It's enormous fun. It is. And that carries us through into the main story, which is uh, Banshee's Angels. Now, Banshee's Angels is, I'm told, Set on Earth, TRN1030. I do not know what that means. So, okay. So one of my primary sources of research for this podcast is the Marvel Database. It's like a, it's one of the fandom sites. I, I think it's a fan edited, like a wiki kind of thing. And um, they not only record all of the reality numbers, like Earth 616, etc., but they also record all the different realities that don't have numbers, that Marvel never officially numbered. And so that those numbers start with TRN, temporary reality number, which are just placeholders until such time as Marvel deigns to really right. give an official number. Uh, so, so yeah, this is from the Marvel database, TRN1030. Um, there you go. That knowledge will probably never help any of us in our lives, but we would be remiss if we did not mention it. Well, it it'll obviously come into play again when Marvel come back to the world of Banshee's Angels. Which, in fact, they will do in an issue of X-Men Unlimited that we'll get to in just a moment. But this issue has this Banshee's Angels thing as basically its set piece. It is the longest story in the book by some distance, and it is the most brilliantly over-the-top alternate reality thing in which three of the members of Generation X, M, Page, and Jubilee, are rendered as effectively Charlie's Angels. We start off in Gangster Avenue, the bad part of town. It's an evil hideout. You can tell it's an evil hideout because all the windows are blacked out and it's got the huge sign outside that says Gangster Avenue. 
all the lines are bendy. Everything is funky. The password to get into the hideout is Nipsey Russell and your mama last night. And this is where Mr. Gator lives, who is a mob boss of some description, here to drop off a bit of merchandise, which happens to be Little Artie and Leech. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's fun about this. is It's an alternate 70s-tacular reality, but it's still got, like, the same characters. Even Artie and Leech, who most people would forget, were, you know, living in the treehouse in the biosphere in Gen X at the time. Mm. And so, them having been kidnapped, of course, they do have guardians, in this case, Emma Frost. And she goes, since she doesn't have the 20 million ransom at the moment that's being requested... Uh, along with her polka dot bell bottoms and her 70s haircut, to Cassidy Investigations. That's right. In this reality, Banshee runs a private investigation company, and he calls in his angels. And maybe we should talk a little bit about just what Charlie's Angels is, since this whole thing is a reference and not all the listeners are going to be familiar. Yeah, I mean, my knowledge of Charlie's Angels is effectively limited to the remakes that have come out over the years. Because... You know, just too young to have seen it when it was around at the time. You know, it was from the mid-70s to early 80s. Um, And Mm -hmm. it basically was these three women that are um, kind of kick-ass agents that get sent on missions to help people, I believe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know <laughs> around the same I do. I know that it was it was a very seventies, very sexified sort of uh, sort of show. Um, they they all worked for this boss that we never actually saw, who would just like give them missions. And um, yeah, that's kind of what we're seeing here: seventies vibe, uh, ass kicking female characters. Who I mean, I wouldn't call them like overly sexualized, but certainly a little bit of that seventies sexiness going on. Yeah, definitely. I think Jim Maffood does like drawing pretty girls, although a lot of his pretty girls kind of look like the same pretty girl. I think he likes to drawing a pretty girl, Um, (laughs) wearing different clothes with different haircuts. Um, But we get this fantastic um, splash page of the, the logo, the original Charlie's Angels logo, which I am vaguely familiar with from having seen it on t-shirts and so on um but it's been redone slightly to be banshee's angels and uh, jubilee compliments jim mafood who is wandering through in the background of the panel for the amount of work that he must have uh, done on this logo and uh, jim mafood says thanks i spent like five or six hours on it and a little balloon points to him with the word liar in it <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so they're, they've got the, the whole 70s vibe going. Like, Emma Frost has this incredible corduroy blazer that she wears. Um, Banshee has got an amazing haircut, which, to be honest, I could see Banshee with that haircut nowadays. Oh, yeah. It's this huge, big shag haircut that makes him look like a sort of Playmobil person. Um, and oh, then... Yeah. When we see M and Husk and Jubilee, they are also wearing clothes with incredibly loud patterns. Jubilee has a coat which it must have a hundred tiny swirls on it. Jim Maffitt does not make things easy for himself, really, does he? Between no. the, all the stars that are spangling around the Banshee's Angels logo and what's all over Jubilee's coat and individually drawn hairs of Banshee's stubble, he gives himself quite a lot to do. 
Yeah, it's it just seems like he was playing with this. It's such a playful comic, and you could really get the feel he was enjoying himself so much that he just kept drawing more stuff into every panel. Yeah, absolutely. So the angels go out on the street after they've had their briefing, and they decide to pick up with one of their informants, who is an ex-cop by the name of Lucas Bishop. Yeah. Oh, and this version of Bishop is so, so very 70s, complete with like Afro pick and gold chain and lots of rings and a turtle's turtleneck. It's very, uh, very 70s black exploitation uh, movie styled. Mm, I think he's definitely uh, kind of angled after uh, Richard Roundtree as a shaft. Um, I think the, the black exploitation era of cinema was around the time of uh, Charlie's Angels in its initial run but i think it's definitely uh yeah it's a subject that neither of us white guys are really particularly um well equipped to discuss the um the depiction of, of bishop here but um certainly he is extremely um over the top and kind of caricatured version of that kind of era's heroes very much um, although it does mention in one of the speech balloons that um, he was kicked out of the police force for destroying five city blocks during the infamous Donut Day riots. Now, I very much would like to know more about the Donut Day riots. One can only hope we get a spinoff. <laughs> so Bishop directs them to the Lizard Lounge, which is where Gator's goons hang out. And Husk says, look, we don't have very many panels left in this comic, so just tell us where to go. And they have uh, a bit of a, a fight scene. Fantastic fight scene, by the way. Oh, yeah, God. Uh, there's this one part that I loved where we see uh, a panel focused on this gigantic goon taking up most of the panel, like punching toward the back at Jubilee. And in the next panel, she uppercuts him and he's like knocked back out of the panel toward the reader, like past the borderlines of the panel itself. It's so freaking dynamic. It's so action packed and like viscerally movement filled. Yeah. And like he even, you know, his his shades go off the edge of the page. That kind of thing. Like, it, it's fantastic. And we do get more fight scenes later on, but I think all we can really say about those is they're incredibly fun, dynamic fight scenes with a lot of um, real kinetic, punchy energy. Um, and again, really recommend you go and check this out on Unlimited if you can, because it is superb. Anyway, they get directed to Gator's home base, which... Given that it's the only house on Gangster Avenue, the baby should have started with it. But anyway, and on the way there, they find time to get changed into this mini skirt, angel winged X logo beltlet, uh, platform shoes, version of the Generation X uniforms. They look amazing. They're so good. Like, I kind of wish they would just wear those in the main Gen X comic. Mm, yeah, like, there's nothing wrong with this costume at all. Like, if they had the the women of Generation X turning up to the Hellfire Gala wearing these costumes, you would just say, yep, absolutely. They completely fit in here. Look at the size of those platforms on those shoes. Superb. <laughs> and Artie and Leech are strapped onto this massive hyper-Kirby tech-ish thing. Um, massive machine, which has got, you know, those fantastic manacles that are just, like, big like hulk hands almost 
they're incredible. Oh yeah, the, the turbine manacles that just are in comics all the time for some damn reason. Yeah, they're wonderful. Um, and they've got those on their hands and their feet. And uh, because obviously very small children, you need to keep them tied down as tightly as possible or else they will just escape. Um, so they fight their way in and they say to Gator, look, give us back Artie and Leech. And Gator says, ahaha, you have fallen into my trap because I need you to come here because I need mutants to power my army of badass robotic super pimps. And the the reaction from Paige being, say what? And the reaction from Jubilee being, we're mutants? It's wonderful. <laughs> it It is, yeah. The, the robots, uh, the, the super pimps, they have like robot gold chains and robot handlebar mustaches and stuff. Uh, pimps were like common villains in 70s uh, media. Again, a complex topic that we do not have nearly enough time to fully delve into, but but that was a thing. And so so here they are. Somebody gets to actually hold up a, a little firm filming clapperboard in front of Gator whilst he's villain-splaining, which has seen 29 Bad Guys dramatic speech, which is another lovely touch. But that leads us into the big fight. And Jubilee has her priorities in order here because she wheels out this enormous boombox-looking thing, which has got eight tracks uh, to plug into it and everything, and plays their theme music to soundtrack the fight with. And the the fight is brilliant. It goes on for, what, one, two, three, three and a half pages of awesome kick-splode punching. And as it turns out, the only way to beat these robot pimps is to really crank up the funk on the boombox and explode them with the raw power of funk. Of course it is. How else could you possibly hope to defeat robot super pimps? No, this is this is the correct answer. Uh, it's like you know, rock beats scissors, raw funk beats robot super pimps, and the heroes uh, win with the power of funk, and everybody's happy, and and the kids are saved, and they go off to the disco, and this is a ridiculous story, and I love it so much. Yeah. And it leads us into the last story in the issue, which is called Half a Face, and this is slightly different from the others in that one, it's not overly comedic; it is very straight down the line. And two, it's not pairing up any of the characters or, or grouping them together. It's just about Chamber. The story is just that Chamber mopes his way into NYC on the bus. He sees people being happy. He narrates to himself about how he is not happy, how he can't be happy. No one understands what it's like to be him. He's incomplete. He has half a face. He can't speak without powers. The story has a much more kind of oppressive atmosphere than the other stories in the issue. It's very internalized. I think there's only one or two dialogue balloons in the entire story. Yeah, yeah, it's mostly just him narrating. And I think the art, uh, I mean, the art does a lot of heavy lifting in this comic in general, but it especially does here. Chamber is drawn with this very dark look, heavily shadowed, his outfit's just a big shape of black. It's almost like a silhouette. And the world around him is just so detailed and so varied. And even though it's a black and white comic, you get the impression everything is very colorful by comparison. It really does just imply how separate he is from everything else, how like uh, withdrawn he is from this incredibly complex world that he feels like he can never fit into. Mm. 
And Jono has always been this very kind of introspective character anyway. He is a moody kind of guy. And I think that's something that a lot of teenagers can relate to. You know, we've, we've all had times in our teenage lives when we felt like Jono does here, that no one can relate to us. But he judges everybody around him as he goes, which again is a very teenagery thing to do. But he thinks, you know, maybe these people are actually the real freaks. These are these are the the weirdos. Most of these people actually seem to be relatively uh, happy and relatively chill in their lives. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a bit of a a cracked mirror thing that's going on. John was seeing things through a a John shaped lens, and that is quite apparent to the the reader. So. We get to the, the end of Jono's day in, in NYC and he's wondering about what he should do. Like, should he just go and keep traveling? Should he go back to the, the school at all? And you may remember from last time I was here, listeners, that I don't know where anything is in America, right? <laughs> I have absolutely no sense of the geography of the US. So when this bus reads out that it's going to St. Louis, Michigan, Chicago, Seattle, Kansas City, Detroit, Los Angeles. Is this an insane route for this bus to be going? Michigan is listed second and Detroit is listed second last. Quite the route. Uh, I can only imagine it's a tour bus and they're just going to cover as many roadside attractions as possible in a thematically appropriate rather than geographically efficient order. Yeah, it it does seem a bit... Um, random but I mean fair enough he doesn't seem to be getting on that bus anyway maybe he just looked at that bus and went no this seems like a headache I don't need and <laughs> and decides to go back home back to Snow Valley and it ends with him narrating just the same way the story started my name's Jonathan Evan Starsmore aka the Mutant Chamber one thing that struck me about this story was that a few years after this there would be an issue of generation x i think it's issue 71 maybe where brian wood writes an issue which is pretty much essentially this story except it's three times longer and it's not as good so so just read this one it's right there yeah. like we said it's not unlimited yeah absolutely and aside from that, the issue just has a few other bits and pieces in it. There's a, a scrapbook page, which has got various things that Jubilee has kept around. There's a set of bootleg trading cards, which are the characters done in all different genres. So you've got Chamber Fight Ninjas and Jubilee as a Banshee's Angel and so on. Uh, it's very zeny to the extent that Mafood recommends specific brand of spray glue to use when cutting them out on cardboard backing. And he's got a couple of sketchbook pages. There's a bootleg t-shirt design, which you can go and get made up. And then it ends with a one-page Hostess Twinkies parody advert, which I think if you get to do a superhero comic and you don't normally do superhero comics, then you should at least get to do one Hostess Twinkies parody advert. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't miss that opportunity if, if you ever write a comic. Uh, like, for instance, Jay Cyclops comic is one of my favorite single issues of all time. But I think it would have only been improved with a Hostess Twinkie ad after the last page. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, this is the Generation X versus the Beat Generation. So it's them versus Jack Carrack, Allen Ginsberg, and William S. Burroughs. Just beautiful. So that's the Generation X Underground special. Now... That, in a different world, could have been it for Jim Mahfoud and Banshee's Angels and so on. But 
that, as it turns out, isn't it? Because later in X-Men Unlimited issue 30, there's another Banshee's Angel short story. Um, this one's called Mother's Knows Best, and it's written by Andy Watson uh, with art and letters by Jim Mahfood. And it is coloured, coloured by Kevin Tinsley. Yes, this one is not a black and white story. It's uh, it, it's so much fun. And I love that it's like a different genre, even though it's Banshee's Angels. It's all spacey instead. Like the angels are in this retro rocket ship in space. Mm. And they get to have all the kind of old... Uh, the old printing dots in the colors, which is terrific. It makes it look like a, a proper kind of 1950s pastiche. And the, the whole story of it is a very simple story, basically. Just um, the Banshee's Angels are out in space. They've got these awesome um, black, red, and yellow jumpsuits. Um, so this is their space uniform. If they were to do the, you know, the action figure line, this would be the, the equivalent of the, you know, Arctic Batman or whatever. Um, but <laughs> it's it still got that incredible retro vibe to it, the way that Banshee's Angels did in the Underground special. Very much, yeah. Like, it's it's just a different kind of retro but it's just the characters uh, hanging out, having fun, bickering. Uh, there's a malfunction on the ship as the computer, which is the mother in the titles, yelling out alerts. And uh, they would normally send their fixer bot out, but apparently Jubilee on the spaceship got bored and turned it into a lamp. So um, they, they, they can't. And I, I love, like, the panel of Jubilee admitting this. She's got this big sweat drop on her forehead. She's blushing. She's forcing a grimace. She's saying, eep. <laughs> Eep is one of the great underused dialogue exclamations in comics, I think. Eep doesn't... Yes. Eep and eek. Eek should also get used more than it does. All the E exclamations. Anyway, so Jubilee goes outside the ship to try and fix it. Mother of the computer is like, take a ray gun with you. And she's like, take a ray gun with you. And goes out and tries to fix the, the ship. Turns out that actually outside the ship... There is a little green alien jerk who has been gnawing at the cabling around the, the ship, and Jubilee is left to kind of face this guy. All the uh, time this is going on, uh, M and Husk are inside the ship getting changed and trying on outfits for uh, a nightclub that they found a flyer for the greatest disco event in the universe. At the Donut Ring, apparently, which maybe it's named in honor of the Donut Day riots. Who knows? Never forget. Never forget. <laughs> um, so M has muted the radio because Jubilee keeps complaining at her. Um, and it's, I won't say it's gratuitous, the changing clothes scene, but, I mean, it is definitely an excuse to draw Husk in a, a bra and short shorts and uh, M in apparently just some panties, which, I mean, it's a bit it's a bit Charlie's Angels-ish, I guess. Yeah, it definitely fits the source material in, in that regard. Yeah, well, the situation is helped by the fact that the, the ship is jostled so much by Jubilee's fight that the lamp, the fixer bot lamp, which was unable to do anything useful previously, um, falls over onto the button, which disables the mute. And the other girls get to hear the fact that Jubilee's having this fight. They come out with their ray guns and blast the alien with a satisfying 
This means, of course, nobody's driving the rocket. So the rocket crashes into the disco. Hooray. And they all just party on this giant full page spread with like so many different varied aliens and humans in different 70s outfits. And like, again, it's just Jim Mahfoud playing. Yeah, they're obviously having the best outer space time. And it makes you kind of think, well, I wish I could go there. They look like they're having a space disco. That's even better than a normal disco. Space makes everything better. Well, I mean, uh, assuming you have a way to breathe. Otherwise, space makes things much worse. (laughs) But once again, music saves the day. And that's really it for Banshee's Angels. We haven't seen them back since. But, you know, maybe we will one day get to go back to Earth TRN1030. You never know. So that's all we have for Jim Mahfoud's Gen X work. And we were thinking, what should we follow this up with? I don't know. How about something that's unrelated in every way, except that it came out around the same era and is really fun? So we are proud to present to you, listeners, the one-shot X-Man All Saints Day, written by Ben Robb, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Leanne Gardner, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Albert Deshane. So the only thing we need to know continuity-wise for this is that Nate Gray, he's the cable of the Age of Apocalypse, sort of, except he's a teenager for reasons. Uh, Recently in continuity at this point, actually in an Excalibur issue, he found out that his powers would kill him before he turned 21, because they were so, you know, powerful. Yeah, Nate doesn't have the techno-organic virus, which is um, being kept in check by his telekinesis, which means that his telekinesis is given free reign to effectively run riot over his entire body. He's also been fine-tuned within an inch of his life by Sinister to be a weapon that Sinister could point at Apocalypse. So not only is Nate going to die before he's 21, he was designed that way. He is a person with planned obsolescence. Very much so. And that's a lot of what the X-Men comic really focuses on, that and shirtlessness. Um, <laughs> and it's it's great, actually. I mean, we talk a lot of shit about Nate Gray on this podcast, but he is a really fun character. And especially as a teenage character, he actually acts like a teenager, which makes him annoying sometimes, yes, but also relatable. Like, we've all been there. I mean, okay, not there specifically, but in general, with less psychic stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I I honestly love Nate Gray. Like, his ongoing was the very first series I collected, like, religiously. But he is, without a shadow of a doubt, very, very stupid. Nate Gray pretty much predicted the himbo trend for lead characters. You know, he's, in many ways, just very ahead of his time. Very That's much That's all so. the problem is. He, he's the proto-himbo. <laughs> so Nate, in this case, is on a train to Transylvania, and we find out why in a flashback, because the day before he was in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village, he was doing this a lot uh, in his comic at the time. He was, like, telling fortunes for people because he was, you know, telepathic. Uh, this is not the time he was in a rock band. That was that was separate. He's, he's worn a lot of hats, but not a lot of shirts. Uh, <laughs> and in this park on this day, he met a little boy named Jerome, who was wearing a Captain America costume for Halloween. Um, but Jerome had a terminal illness. He was in a wheelchair, and Nate telepathically found that this kid was going to die in, like, six or seven months, which, shit, that sucks. And so Nate, he feels for this kid. He's really nice to him. They they banter. And he heads back, but he can't get it out of his head. And this is one of the things I like about Nate. Like, we agree, Nate's Nate's kind of a dumbass, but he does have a genuinely big heart. Like, he's a really good guy. It's just his decisions are 
you know, teenager decisions a lot of the time. Yeah, he flies off the handle with little to no information. And that's basically the plot of the entire, I would say, first 20 issues of X-Men. It's Nick Gray theatrically misunderstands something to terrible results. It's basically like Three's Company, but as a comic where everybody in Three's Company is one person. <laughs> One's Company. <laughs> so anyway, he's he's thinking, what am I going to do, this poor kid? And this random old Transylvanian lady who's in the park has apparently overheard the conversation and is like, hey, I know of a countess in my homeland of Transylvania who sacrificed her soul and learns to cheat death. And Nate's like, lady, that is a weird thing for you to come out of nowhere and tell me. Uh, have a good one. Uh, I'll see you never. So Nate cannot stop thinking about this kid. but. What I can't stop thinking about is the name of the countess the old lady was talking about. Al, would you like to do the honors? Ladies, gentlemen, and people who have transcended the gender binary, this countess's name is Absinthia von Mort. That is a very good name. Absinthia von Mort in Transylvania. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose it wouldn't work quite so well if it was like Absinthia von Mort from Boise. (laughs) <laughs> or would it work better she'd be a a, a big scary fish in a, a small boise pond uh so yes anyway uh nate can't stop thinking about jerome in the wheelchair and absinthia von mort in transylvania and so he's like you know what screw it i don't have a lot of time i'm gonna die young too just like this poor kid jerome fuck it i'm gonna go to transylvania and try to find absinthia von mort so he jumps on the train, which is where we find him on page one. And this is the, the sum total of the flashbacks. Like, why am I in Transylvania on a train? It's because an old lady in the park told me to go there. No, you are not benefited from knowing this at all. <laughs> Let's just move on. <laughs> and move on we do toward Transylvania, where Nate meets two of his train mates, uh, a pair of newlyweds named Teresa and Sebastian. Um, They're honeymooning in Transylvania, which is a little odd, but they point out the reason, which is that they've each uh, lost part of their body. Uh, Sebastian's missing a hand. Teresa's missing a leg. They have prosthetics. And so they're going to meet a Dr. Cindy Von Mort, who apparently is very good with regenerative therapy. Cindy Von Mort can't be the same person as Absinthia Von Mort. That's just, that would be ridiculous. That would be ludicrous. They're they're family members at best. Those are clearly different first names. Yeah, yeah. Clark Kent doesn't, you know, Superman doesn't wear glasses. Anyway, um, the, the, the two of them, though, Teresa and Sebastian, the vibe that they give off could not be more suspicious even if they were wearing huge fake mustaches. They are so clearly not who they claim to be um, that it just it, it just becomes a matter of, who are they really? Not even, are they really Teresa and Sebastian? It's just like, come on, come on, get to the reveal. Yup. Uh, Nate, of course, is thinking about other stuff because he's he's Nate. But we get to the train station, which is being in Transylvania in a half-collapsed cemetery overrun with crows. And there's like a giant gothic castle illuminated by lightning on a cliff in the distance. I have never been to Transylvania. I can only assume this is the most average possible Transylvanian visual, like just you look out your window in Transylvania, wherever you live in Transylvania, and this is what you see, this sort of thing. 
It's exactly like I mean, it's it's pretty much like how here in Scotland, all the moors and the glens and the lochs are basically just right here in the cities, and all the cities have got cobbled streets, and there's a castle every half a mile. And just do not get me started on the fog. It's ludicrous. Mm. I mean, I've never been to Scotland. You're a native. That I now I know. Yeah, this is. If it weren't like this, then how could we possibly get away with chasing mutants through the streets with flaming torches all the time? Mm. You know, angry Europe. mobs are Europe, huh? <laughs> angry mobs are important in Europe and and uh, central to it. So our heroes, that being Nate and whoever the hell these two other people are, are taken to the doctor's castle. Yeah, that's that's uh, Doctor Cindy's castle up there with the lightning. Uh, in a car driven by her assistant, a Monsieur Boniface, who's this gray, wrinkly-looking dude. It's a French name, so I assume it is Boniface. That's my best approximation. Yeah. But um, it, it, it's a shame he wasn't a skeleton guy, because then it could have been Bonyface instead. Yeah, I think we are definitely invited to note that it could be pronounced Bonyface if you're pronouncing it wrongly. I mean, we're pretty much at the point where you know, Von Mort's sidekick could be called... Monsieur Bitey Neck or something like that as well. Uh, Bitey Neck. Uh, it's a German, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they, they meet another guy as they get to the castle who's like pulling the drawbridge chain, who's this enormous dude named Augustine. Apparently he had lung cancer and the doctor healed him, which turned him into a giant gray man wearing black rubber with a visible skeleton under his flesh. Wait a minute, wait a minute. She healed a guy, and now he's wearing black rubber. Does she heal people the same way the Morlock Stewer Wizard heals people? Just, like, puts them in bondage gear, and then they're fine? <laughs> we should note as well that the ca- of the characters we've met so far, there's a Jerome, a Teresa, a Sebastian, a Boniface, and Augustine. They are literally all saints. And re- so... See what he did there. Yeah, it's called All Saints Day. Nate at one point talk, talks about how the X-Men are almost like saints and they've inspired him to be heroic. So it's a, it's a theme we keep coming back to. Where we come to for now, though, is the castle. And it is so perfectly, stereotypically, like, creepy. There are these giant chandeliers with dripping candles and creepy portraits of ancestors. Uh, there's lightning all the time. And our hostess fits in really well. Dr. Cindy Von Mort, a woman with long black hair, some very 90s Hot Topic tattoos, a sexy black leather outfit, and uh, green skin. Also green skin. And as she comes down, she sees our heroes staring at the various portraits, uh, specifically at a woman who they all assume must be her ancestor. And her first speech is quite the thing. Take it away, Dr. Von Mort. Stunning, wasn't she? So soulfully entrancing in her beauty, yet so very tortured. Funny thing about us Von Mord women, our passions. It seems we all possess a certain macabre flair for the absurd, the unthinkable, an almost morbid fascination with the gruesome and grotesque. The innermost workings of a human soul, or the absolute lack thereof. After all, what greater satisfaction can we mortals wring from the neck of life than the solution of that ancient conundrum plaguing saint and sinner alike? The meaning of life, death, and what lies beyond the void of existence. I am your hostess. 
Dr. Von Mort. Welcome to Castle Absinthe. Brought to you in association with Pernod Ricard. Al, have you ever considered hosting late-night horror movies? That was amazing! I don't have the cleavage for it. Uh, you know, that's true. We we all have our, our drawbacks. But yeah, this is Dr. Von Mort. I love her so goddamn much. It's so clear that the Dodsons are having a blast drawing her. Drawing this, like, stereotypical horror movie hostess, vampire, monster, mad scientist lady. Oh, she is a delight. Uh, Nate replies woe to this speech, which really just brings me back to the um, delightful Gary Oldman, Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder Dracula movie, uh, <laughs> where Keanu Reeves was cast as Jonathan Harker, the character in fiction most likely to legitimately say woe. <laughs> yes, exactly. And even when she welcomes Nate, her third unexpected guest, because she was only expecting the other two, she's still just a delight. As the spider said to the fly's bones after picking its flesh clean, there's always room for one more in the belly of this beast. Did, did the spider really say that, Doc? I don't know. <laughs> she would come off as disconcertingly threatening, even if she hadn't started off by welcoming everyone to Dr. Jennifer Murder's drop-in deathatorium. Okay, the castle's now officially renamed. Amazing. <laughs> so anyway, it, it turns out that Teresa and Sebastian are not, in fact, the newlywed, etc., etc. They're really Interpol agents here to infiltrate the castle and bring the doctor to justice for the recent string of kidnappings in the area. Uh, and indeed, as they snoop around, um, they see a delivery guy delivering a freshly murdered lady to Boniface and Augustine. The delivery guy asks to be given what he's got coming to him, which is pretty much just one step away from saying, oh, lovely night, sure, I hope I don't get murdered. Which, of course, he does immediately. As does Teresa. She's caught by the bad guys and falls to her death. And then Sebastian himself is captured at dinner waiting for her and while he tries to arrest the doctor. So Nate feels all of this telepathically. And what the doctor is doing to all of these corpses reminds him of the experiments that Sinister did to all those mutants, including himself, in the Age of Apocalypse. So Nate does what Nate does. He flies in without a plan to just fight the bad guys. Which is a, a, a tactic which works for him more often than you would think it does, really. Which is great, because if it didn't, he doesn't really have any other tactics left in the, in the box. It's true. Uh, a lot of power will, will get you far, apparently. Uh, but it doesn't get him far here because he can't control the minds. He can't even read the minds of uh, Boniface and Augustine. It's like they don't have them. And so they just start beating the living hell out of him. And Boniface uses some weird powers he got when he was resurrected by Dr. Von Mort to, like, take over Nate's mind and make him feel all this pain. And so he's captured. And Dr. Von Mort is so pleased by this. Beautiful work, gentlemen. With this exquisite weapon at our side, we increase our power a thousandfold. Soon we shall unleash his full fury on the gibbering hordes of hell, and the devil himself shall curse the day he dared trifle with me. Absinthia. Absinthia. 
So is it because she's green like absinthe or because her name is Cynthia and she has amazing abs? <laughs> she does have amazing abs. She could crack an oyster open them like otters do. <laughs> That probably happened uh, many times before this issue started. That's what she was doing. That's why she was late to greet her guests. So, yeah, we get a bit of the the villain explaining of her origin after this, which turns out to be where Diablo comes in. Yes, because uh, exactly 188 years ago, Absinthia Von Mort's husband died on All Saints Day, the day after Halloween. Well, in some versions of Christianity, not all of them. Anyway, so she decided to do what any grieving widow would do and learned the dark arts to try to resurrect him, including using the alchemical techniques of a creepy guy she met named Esteban Diablo. Maybe that's where she got her flair for uh, dramatic names. But it turned out that Diablo tricked her and gave her, like, bad, useless potions that wouldn't work, which he knew would lead her to despair so much that she wanted to kill herself to join her husband in the afterlife. But, like, the suicide potion he gave her wasn't really a suicide potion. It was really a turn-you-green-and-make-you-immortal potion, which she was very upset about because that was not her plan. So, um, yes, now she is cursed with eternal life, and she can, like— give other people weird eternal life by, I don't know, sweating green from her fingertips into their mouths, from what we can tell? That part's a little ambiguous. Uh, but everything she's doing now is to get revenge on Esteban Diablo, on Steve Heart of the Devil. Uh, Esteban is an immortal alchemist with this, like, rad purple and green and black outfit. I had his trading card. Um, he's got a very dramatic mustache that goes, like, three inches past his chin, and his mask has these eyebrow things that are kind of like that, and earbrow things, I guess. There's a lot of stuff coming out of his face. Uh, so, yeah, he is the nemesis of Absinthia Von Mort. He does not actually show up in this comic in the present day. She is just, like, super pissed at him, and kicking his ass is her motivation for doing all of the evil shit she's doing. Yeah, Diablo tends to be a, a Fantastic Four villain, and I always see him as being the villain who, like, if there was a line where on one side it's, oh no, it's him, and on the other side it's, oh geez, not this guy again, he is just under that line as far as the FF's reactions are concerned. Yeah, you know, that, that sounds very accurate. Uh, he's, he's such a Silver Age villain, and like, Marvel tried for so long to like, make him work, and that just made him very, very complicated, and I appreciate that. <laughs> so anyway absinthia von mort is about to force feed nate her like finger green sweat to take him over but it turned out that she didn't successfully do so to sebastian he's been faking the whole time he didn't swallow the green sweat he just has kept it in like his cheek the whole time i assume but unfortunately what he does with his newfound freedom when he reveals this is to just kill himself to join his dead partner which is rough, um, but the psychic backlash from that gives Nate enough strength to break free, and there's a great big fight between him and Absinthia and her henchmen. Yeah, and then the, the fight goes on for a number of pages in which he successfully defeats the henchmen, I think, three times, and each time says, well, that's them out of the way, and then it turns out that they are not, in fact, out of the way, they come back again. But by the end of the fight, Nate is effectively the winner and he manages to figure out where the various other people who Absinthia Von Mort has kidnapped because this was a whole thing back at the beginning of the story that wasn't important enough for us to mention at the time. But uh, he pulls all that out of Absinthia's mind 
frees them. They're in the morgue drawers in her lab, of course, is where you keep people. And he manages to rescue them just in time using his telekinesis, just as flames that have come out from the, the fight uh, hit a powder keg and the whole castle just goes. And so that's it for Castle Absinthe. And uh, the bad guys are all arrested uh, and taken off to apparently a very secure jail because none of them have appeared since for some reason, even though they're great. And um, mm. Nate goes home, wrapped with guilt, but meets up with Jerome and is inspired about, you know, life being meaningful moment to moment all over again. And from Jerome's wise words, and they just play some pickup basketball and talk about how living as fully as you can with the time you have is really all you can do. And it's it's actually a very sweet, very nice ending after all of this Transylvanian glorious nonsense. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I'm really glad that he doesn't manage to... I, I, I say this and people are going to think I'm a monster. I'm glad that he doesn't manage to save the kid because it's it's not about that. It's, it's about teaching... The story's about teaching Nate that actually he should you know, learn to live with who he is and that you can't always just conjure up a fairy tale ending for people and you should try and appreciate what you've got yeah and nate could do with learning that because he can be a a bit of a huffy little mister sometimes one time he created a whole alternate reality because he was uncomfortable with people having sex from what i understand that's a that's a different episode though that was a that was a weird one yeah so yes this is a in and in this is an inconsequential one-shot continuity-wise, but it's so much fun. And, like, I'll freely admit half of that is because I love the name and the character, Absinthia Von Mort. And I don't know how no one has ever brought her back. She's the best. Yeah, I mean, if there were, for example, a comics writer who might be listening to this, who might have some experience writing books starring green characters that have immortal in the title, then I might suggest that this is a character they could revisit. Purely hypothetically. Purely hypothetically. Oh, so there you have it, listeners. Uh, some underground comics and Absinthia Von Mort. And what you also have is questions. Smudge Tune asked on Tumblr, So with the Jean Grey Mini, I was wondering, is it possible for the Phoenix to bring someone back to life from Bones? And also, who has the Phoenix at this point? Right. So I won't go into too many of the details from the current Jean Grey miniseries because I know not everyone's caught up and I don't want to spoil anything. But as far as your questions, uh, yes, yes, that is absolutely possible. In fact, Jean Grey at one point fully rebuilt her body from the molecules up. That was actually not too long ago. Uh, That was when the time-displaced original 5X-Men were in the present. And time-displaced teen Jean Grey got her body, like, taken over and permanently corrupted by a Clintar symbiote, like, you know, the Venom aliens. This was in the Venomized crossover. Mm. And so um, her disembodied uh, mind, which was, you know, fine and intact, destroyed her original corrupted body and then built a new one completely from scratch from her own knowledge of it. And that's with her only having, like, a tangential connection to the Phoenix Force. So... If Jean also has the Phoenix Force at various points, like child's play, she could totally do that. Yeah, in terms of who's got the Phoenix Force at the moment, I believe it's still Echo, who is the Daredevil character um, who I think her TV show is about to drop in January. Um, she got the Phoenix Force as part of an Avengers story that was written by Jason Aaron, and it was a uh, 
basically a whole bunch of heroes kind of fought each other to see who got to get the phoenix and echo lost but the phoenix liked her best which goes to show that if you are sufficiently well loved the rules do not apply to you it will be interesting to see if marvel try to recalibrate echo actually now that she is gonna have this kind of street level show on disney plus because at the moment she's got a flying blazing space bird a little bit different. It's true. It's true. And in fact, I do know that some of the people working on the show have talked a bit disparagingly about that plot, which always makes me uncomfortable. It's like a mommy and daddy are fighting kind of thing. <laughs> Red Gears emailed us to ask, I've noticed in many comics from the late 90s, there's a color bar at the top of the page, often blue. Any idea why this is? Yes, this is a secret code, uh, which is encoded into comics from the time. And uh, it's part of a scavenger hunt across a number of different ads from comics back then. And if you were able to collect all of them and decipher the code, then you could win a jet ski with the Silver Surfer on the side of it. It's it's absolutely not that. I have no idea what these color bars mean. Well, I think your answer is probably better than mine, even if mine may be more, more accurate. I want that jet ski. Uh, okay, so... I actually didn't know this either when you asked this question, Red Gear, so I had to look it up because, like, I'd never thought about it, but looking back, yeah, those things were everywhere. So from what I've been able to learn, I think this is right. I think it's that different colors corresponded to different release weeks because, of course, different comics are released every week. They're just not all, they're not all released at the same time in a given month. And so this was so that retailers knew how long a given issue had been out and then could use that information to easily decide when to pull all, say, the red issues off shelves. Um, so, you know, maybe red was like the first week of January, 1973, blue is the second, yellow is the third, etc. It wasn't just pulling issues off the stands, though. Um, if you were a newsstand, not like a comic shop, but a newsstand or a drugstore or whatever, you could return comics that you bought that consumers didn't buy. Whereas if you're a retailer, you have to sort of buy the right number. And so then those color-coded week signifiers would let you know what the deadline was to return a given comics. Like, oh, all the red comics are due by, like, the 17th of February if I want to get my money back. That sort of thing. There was also some evidence that this might have been related to making sure the different color plates were lined up when comics pages were printed. Uh, I'm not sure that that's actually the case at all, but I'm pretty sure the release week thing is. So there you go. Thank you for your question, Red Gears. I, I think we've all learned something about about ourselves as people yeah and about a silver surfer jet ski exactly al thank you so much it was so great to work with you again and talk about these delightful comics i i have missed this it's been tremendous and i will happily revisit the, the jml's universe anytime excellent uh in the meantime before that happens uh if people want to hear more of you on the interwebs where can they find you they can find me at HouseToAstonish.com, which is where House to Astonish podcast is, where uh, Paul O'Brien and I talk about comics every, usually once a month. And um, also we have a uh, reread and recap podcast around Marvel's original Thunderbolts called The Lightning Round, which comes out alternately um, with episodes of House to Astonish. You can also get me over on my other podcast, which is DesertIslandDiscworld.com, which is basically half biographical interview, half book group. as a podcast about the books of Terry Pratchett and the people who read them. That is that is so much. I, I feel like such a slacker by comparison. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, listeners, uh, check, check all those things out because Al is delightful and, and they are delightful. 
And that is all the time we have for now. So with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded this week in Portland, Oregon and Edinburgh, Scotland, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Jay's back. As is everyone's telepathy, as Gaia joins Generation X. And these goods have come by to drop off a bit of um, uh, luggage, a bit of baggage, a bit of... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? (laughs) Merchandise is the word. There we go. I can do that bit again. Sorry. (laughs) I kind of like that. Yeah, okay. (laughs)